Welcome to Talking Architecture and Design. My name is Brian Carmelitic, and now for the I think it's the first time we have a thrice returning guest. Is that correct, Mr. Tone Wheeler? Oh, I think it is. Yeah. There, you there you go. Tone Wheeler. Three times lucky. Three times lucky. There you go. Tone Wheeler, um, architect, lecturer, uh, founder and principal of Environa, um, a wonderful man, a man who knows everything about there is to know about architecture. We'll today talk about, I believe, autonomous houses. Autonomous housing. It's like like drones. We're going to talk. <laughs> no, I wish it was. No, it was a. It, it's actually been the the start of my career in right, architecture. Okay. Was because uh, I had a very miserable time at high school, and then when I got to university, it kind of all flowered, and particularly as a result of one man, Ma Grounds, right, who's Sir Roy Grounds' son. And when I started, he just finished working with Christo and Jean-Claude in wrapping Little Bay. Okay. Okay. And he was deeply interested in environmental design. He was like an environmental sculpture, um, and he loved making things out of found objects and so on, and huge respect for the environment, and not so much for high-end architecture. Okay. So... And he imbued in us when we were in first year this, firstly, this sense of adventure, this sense of incredibly, the great possibilities that there were, given that this is 1970s, the end of the 60s, it is really still the 60s in Australia. You know, the sort of um, 68 in Paris didn't really happen until 73 in Australia at Aquarius Festival. But anyway, right. that's a, so I think there's. The origins of it were with with Ma, and I'd done an undergraduate degree, and I I had a sort of small scholarship to go and travel, and almost all of my friends went via the overland route to London. Um, what is the overland? Is that, is that through Afghanistan? I heard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. well, well. Most famously, my namesake Tony Wheeler and his wife Maureen went up from Australia through Indonesia and then up through Thailand, Cambodia, Laos, and then you go across into India, Pakistan, and across into all the stands, you know, um, in, and particularly Afghanistan and Kabul in those days was apparently the most amazing city. And then you, trans, you, know, you went, transferred onto the, the sea and went through Greece and spent time on the islands and so on, and eventually made your way through Europe and ended up in London. That was the trip. Wow. And what happened with Tony Wheeler and, and Tony and Maureen wrote a set of basically Roneoed notes, I think they were, about how you did that trip. And uh, people kept asking for it and adding to it and so on. And that's how Lonely Planet was started. Oh, there you go. It just came from this. And it was pretty, I think it's pretty much the same year that I decided I'd go in completely the opposite direction, go to America, because it would seem to me that partly from the fact that Mar Grounds had come from America, he'd been taught in Berkeley. Berkeley was the place to be, you know, to be at um, the most progressive universities, you know, University of California and Berkeley was, there was hippies and there was creativity. And I decided to go and see that with the idea that I was interested in environmental design for housing. And when I got there, I discovered that Los Angeles wasn't really the center of it and nor was Berkeley, but it was all happening in the four states that had joined together, the only four that that meet it at, at a right angle in the, the middle of it is Utah, no, um, 
Arizona, Utah, Nevada, and Colorado all join. And that area, those four states, um, particularly New Mexico and, and, and Colorado, were, had hippie communes that were developing that were building everything under the sun. And, and in fact, the aforementioned Bar Grounds had built domes, as was the currency then from Buckminster Fuller, out of car parts, particularly car doors and so on. He was very adept as a welder. And he'd constructed these things for a thing called Drop City. There's a very good book on it, by the way, written by Peter Rabbit. But that's another story. So I arrived there and I start going through these communes that I'm directed to, you know, one after the other. And I start seeing houses and communes built which are fleeing the city. Almost all of them are hippies who are putting the oil crisis of 1973 and the smog and so on and the pollution and the, the, the riots and everything else that are going on in the cities. And they're basically catastrophists, you might call them now, people who think that you know, there's a huge catastrophe coming in the city and then they flee to what we would call the bush, but they flee to um, places where you can build anything you want and not be disturbed and so on. It's that great, the what, Wild what West. Do, what do they call them in the US? Preppers, isn't it? Um, well, that's what it is now. But in those days, it was much more positive. It was the idea that you could go and make your own commune. And I visited some. Some were very old and had been there for a long time. There's one called Arcasanti, which was founded by an architect, an Italian-American architect, Paolo Soleri. It's north of Phoenix in a ravine. And he was building a, a whole city, he said, but in, in, in concrete with volunteers and I went there and I volunteered and the money that was raised for it was out of him casting bells in brass I mean it, it, that's how you made the money so there was always a side hustle in all of these things that you could sell things to tourists and so on um, quite famously um, Bruce Goff who'd come from Oklahoma another one of these you know sort of rebel states where you could do anything you want he built the Bavinger house and he charged people a dollar a time to go and see this house that was held up by a single post with wires around it. And um, Goff tells a story that you know, by the time they'd finished the house, it had been paid for by all these rubberneckers going to see wow. the house. Um, and it was, it was part of that tradition that, that thrived. Um, Frank Lloyd Wright was part of it because he made the most extraordinary houses at Taliesin. Where Taliesin is that? West. That's in Scottsdale, outside Scottsdale, which is outside Arizona, Phoenix in the middle of Arizona, Arizona right, yeah, AZ. Yeah. And I went to see that and I went to see um, Paolo Soleri, who had worked for Wright for a little while. But I ended up with some really interesting sort of experimental houses. You know, a guy called Rob Rhinus, who was building heavily insulated domes with interseasonal storage. He was in a, above the snow line in Colorado. And he was storing hot water that he'd make during summer so that he could keep himself warm in winter. I mean, I'd never thought of that kind of a, you know, interseasonal to do it over a whole year. So like hydronic heating. Really. Yeah, and he, and he, he remembers, he, he knows me when I, when I arrived because he says, oh, you're an Aussie. And I said, yeah. And he said, all my equipment comes from Australia. You guys are so far ahead. And I didn't think that at all. But all his solar water heaters were, were made by, in Australia. And his electrical power was coming from three small wind generators, wind turbines, 
of the old style, the propeller type, mm-hmm. that had been made by a South, South Australian company called Dunlight. Um, and, and they were the world champions. Why? Because Australian farms are so remote. Mm-hmm. To make their own electricity, we had, by dint of necessity, designed and made these things. So I, I, I loved staying there, and it was extraordinary, but he refused permission to any, for anything to be photographed. So, really? Yeah. Hmm. Why? Oh, look, I think it's all part of that um, refusenik thing about, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm leaving the city and everything, that it, every bit of the press and publicity and everything that goes with the command central of the, of the city and so on. It, it, it's that whole thing about... I'm opting out, and you're, and I'm, and it's a matter of privacy. He was, it was also probably the fact that you know he was probably building things that weren't legal at all on land that he didn't have rights to or whatever. But you did it in those days. Mm-hmm. And I went to see a guy called Steve Bayer in New Mexico, outside of Albuquerque, and uh, it was it, it, that was zone works. So he was taking domes, which are made on triangles, mm. and making them out of trapezoids, which he called zomes, and there were zone works. Mm-hmm. And he had a house which had fold-down walls. They folded down in the morning, and the sun sh- shone on 44-gallon drums, although they're 50-gallon, I think, in America because they've got a smaller gallon or whatever. And so he's using oil technology to store hot water to make a completely independently operated house. And I kind of liked the irony of that and had a kind of nice art touch. And they were beautifully made buildings. And I got to see them. Some of them I stayed in. Um, I went to see enough of these to know that these people were so far off the grid, which was the term they were using, to be off-grid housing was to be autonomous so you uh, you weren't okay. connected to the the grid you weren't connected to the man as they kept putting it and you weren't connected to the power structures literally the social or technological power structures of the united states and so they it was a sort of cult in a way but most of the people that worked in it were very kindly and they certainly welcomed a you know bearded hippie from australia who and they took me in and showed me everything that was there and it was deeply impressive and I saw maybe a dozen of those and everywhere I went they kept saying oh you know uh, Stuart Brand was here last week or uh, Stuart Brand and Lloyd Kahn was here last week and there were these two guys that eventually published a book about all these places called Shelter it's been reissued it's been republished anybody wants to see all these places that I'm talking about it's in this book called Shelter and I discovered of course that you know I was just a student writing an honours thesis Um, but these were two guys going around photographing everything and publishing it and making a book which was my first lesson about the difference between what you do in academia and what you can actually do for real life and um, to, to this day Stuart Brand the guy that that invented virtually invented the whole earth catalogue and later wrote a wonderful book called How Buildings Learn. And Lloyd Kahn, who was the main author for for Shelter, were fantastic role models for these guys that just absorbed all this alternative technology, which is what it was called in those days. And um, they wrote extensively about all these different hippie communities and then drew back into traditional societies. So they were looking at the American Indians and they were looking at... Plains Indians as well as 
um, people who lived in in uh, rock caves and so on, and then they moved further afar, afar, and they were looking at traditional societies from all over the world, their technologies and so on. The thing that stuck with me was this idea that you could actually make something completely autonomous. You could make something so it ran completely self-powered. And that that notion of creativity that was in it was was you know, a very strong, uh, very strong part of my thesis when I came back. But I, I had to write an academic thesis, and it was pretty dry. And it was based on ecological principles for the operations of a house. And I had these very, very sophisticated diagrams um, that I'd, I'd learnt from courses at ANU that I'd done before I'd left from a guy called Stephen Boyden, who's still one of the most interesting researchers in Australia. And I then went, was invited as a senior student to address a, a, a junior class with the new, the new lecturer, a guy called Cole James, who was you know, really interesting. He wore a South Sydney um, you know, Rabbitohs jumper and he had you know, long hair and a ponytail. <laughs> We'd never seen anybody who was a you know, senior lecturer like this. And I, gave it, and I showed all the slides, which had not been in the thesis, of all these places, including going to London, where at the University of Cambridge... Um, they built a this uh, a guy called uh, Kane uh, Graham Kane had built the street farmhouse, so it was a building where, as he called it, um, the living room was where things were growing. You no, know, they were actually living in the living room. Oh, okay. So he had a he had a, a greenhouse for a living room, well, and he was that, using that, that, must be, that. Must be an interesting way to uh, watch TV. Yeah. <laughs> TV, <laughs> that's that's something that the uh, mainstream is doing. No, we're alternative here. So I showed all these slides of everything at the at the end of it and uh, thinking that they were going to design one. And the lights go up at the end and, and Cole James says, well, that's pretty interesting. They all seem to have built one. Why don't we build one? And, I, and I'd, never, I'd never experienced that at university. I mean, the Mar Grounds had introduced us to the idea of making sculptures and making things and there was a couple of workshops uh, run by the beautifully named Cess Pittman um, and you know, people who were at Sydney University in those days will remember very fondly going to these metal and timber workshops and stuff but college she said we'll build a whole house I'll get you some land on the university and we'll build one and he did and he got a piece of land behind the architecture school at University of Sydney um, and at that stage there was an old primary school which was being decommissioned, which the university has eventually taken over and turned into, I think it's the engineering school. And the Seymour Centre is under construction, so cast your mind back. It's a long time ago. Okay. And we start collecting rubbish from around the place that we can build a, a house out of. And I was trying to apply all these technologies, but with I, don't, I had a very small number of books that you could refer to. But one of the things, there was this French invention called the Trom-Michel wall, uh, invented by two engineers, Trom and Michel, that, that meant that if you put heat into a wall behind glass, you could then circulate air past that wall 
and heat the house at night. It was interesting idea and people we took it up and say what were we going to use for the solid mass this is the beginnings of thermal mass which most people will know is the the fundamental requirement of a a very good passive solar house which is essentially what we're building you know you've got you've got three things that you've got to have high levels of insulation all the way around it build a big esky put a lot of thermal mass inside it Mm-hmm. You know, brick, concrete, something like that, and then have some control mechanism that you can let the heat in or out, mm-hmm. the, the fundamental principles of it. We settled on beer bottles filled with water. So well, Good use of empty beer bottles. Yeah, well, there was a huge amount of it because there was all brown long necks in That's those right. days. Yeah, okay. And we went round Glebe because that was the suburb that seemed to have... You know, and we went the night before the bottle o came because in those days yeah. there was a guy who went round. I'm sure there were guys... Went around collecting beer bottles Littles, into yeah. into big sacks That's right, from yeah. recycling them, and we got ahead of them and we collected them. And, and to this day, I remember that in Glebe in that area, which is pretty working class, mm. I think in those days, um, they drank seventy percent, seventy five percent Resch's DA to to twenty five percent Resch's Pilsner wow. from one of the fourteen pubs in Glebe. So. We collected the beer bottles and we put water in them and then crown sealed them so they were clean. Mm-hmm. And the biggest debate was do you lay them neck out or neck in? Which absorbs the most sun? And I actually wrote a, a mathematical paper because we had to do maths and let, science let, let, and let, me, let me guess, neck in because the base absor- is greater surface no, area. No, the greater surface area is on the neck and because the neck there is shaped that way. As the sun passes over it, it's always going to be striking some part of the oh, neck. There you go. I don't know if that's true or not, but we had, I, I probably have somewhere buried in the archives is a paper that says that that's the case. We built a greenhouse over the front of it, but the greenhouse got modified, so it was not, didn't work as a trombichel wall, but it, it grew plants. We laid the floor in bricks, which we got from an old driveway when the Wentworth building was being built, the Wentworth Student Union. We got pieces of timber. There are 14 columns holding up the building, not one of, one of which is the same as the one next to it. There were 14 different sizes. We, we got some trusses donated to us that had come from something, and they told us what they were, but we measured them wrongly. So instead of being along the bottom cord, we measured the top cord, and they got turned upside down. So instead of being a vertical face, it had a sloping face, and then we justified that by putting solar water heaters on it. We put a wind generator which came from um, the aforementioned Dunlight. Mm-hmm. And um, 300 watts, as I remember, was its power. Um, and we, we did about half of that in the first year. We had six months of the, on, the, on the land. And um, we, I think we only got the shell of the house up in the six months. And then Cole went back to the university, and Cole James got us another six months and then another six. Eventually, it's there for six years. Um, so, you know, several years after I'd left university, there were still people living in it, working on it, building it, researching it. But it became quite notorious. We we had various adventures there. The wind came up at one stage and blew the wind generator down off the roof and into the solar water heater. So we lost two pieces of technology in one. We tried to build a methane generator, which is to take all human waste and scraps. And I'd heard from... Graham Kane, that one of the things you've got to watch out from this is that you don't put antibiotics in it because it kills it. 
And even knowing this, somehow, the first run we had with it, it, it died, so we never ended up using it. Um, some other people moved in and started making gardens, which was fantastic, and growing Asian food. And really interestingly, that one of the students, the younger students in the year, was a guy called Michael White. Very tall man with a big shot of red hair, but he'd been the same year that I was over in the States in, in, in um, Colorado, New Mexico. He'd been in Bali, and he'd fallen in love with Bali, and he'd come back to be uh, completely besotted with Balinese culture. And eventually he goes on to live in Bali, a year or so later, um, and wrote books about Bali, became their leading landscape architect and designer, okay. um, took an Indonesian name, Made Wajaya, which is Made means second born, Wajaya, the closest thing to white. So he and he and he lives there in, in Sarongs and is is well known. Sadly Michael passed away uh, a couple of years ago, but his legacy is there. Everybody that that you talk to about Bali and Balinese design knows Michael White. He he worked with Peter Muller when he was doing Amandari. He worked with um, Kerry Hill when he was working. He was the go-to man for gardens. The beginnings of all of that is making a garden at the autonomous house. So we're not really autonomous, but we're not connected to anything. We had no electricity, so we just had you know lamp light and stuff. We were growing our own food, but some of that we were making compost and stuff and composting the food and getting ill as a result of that, um, given what we we know now. But we made this autonomous house. But the biggest breakthrough of the lot was that it became a centre for people, attracting people to do an autonomous festival, if you like. So we had an autonomous building festival we had a utopian fair the alternative technology fair every year we had a fair with a different name and uh, i clearly remember uh, bill mollison the author of permaculture launching his first book with david hongram on on the back veranda of the autonomous house and it attracted a huge amount of publicity richard neville he famous you know, journalist and author he of play power and so on he turned up to do a piece for the ABC for it. And we said, well, you don't work on it. You don't get to publicise house until you work on it. He said, okay, I'll do a half hour's work. He said, what do you want me to do? I said, paint the roof. So I gave him a roller and red paint, because it's all painted red, and Richard Neville was up on the roof, painting the roof. We took the ladder away to make sure that he just... Anyway, we had a huge amount of entertainment with that house. Um people that came and so on but deep beneath it we were talk we were living the whole thing we discovered that autonomous houses is a bad idea you, you built a, a, an esky with a greenhouse and a, that, that's, that's surrounded by a heat exchanger so Okay, that's the scientific engineering. Why that sounds great, the autonomous part sounds actually very even appealing to me. But you're telling me this can't be actually replicated. It was a really bad idea because life is much much more complex than the systems that I described in my honours thesis. 
which, by the way, I got a conceded pass on. I, you know, one of those people got 2-2 two, two for their <laughs> honest leases. Um, I just should have put the photos in. But was systems that go with houses, which let, there's four or five major systems, right? Where's your fresh water that you've got to have in the house to drinking and what do you do with the grey water, the black water, the grey water being, you know, water that's marginally uh, polluted and black water being, of course, faeces and, and urine. What do you do with the rainwater and collect it and so on? What do you do with for electricity, for power? What do you do for lighting and so on? Um, what hasn't sorry hasn't a lot of this been solved? Um, now I mean okay let's move forward but so well, okay I'm, I'm, I'm going to get there but I'm taking there too long go. Branko no I'm, no I'm, I'm just one because because there, there was a there's, sim- a there's a technological solution to everything and the technology it, it, solution it, it, is do it at scale and the uh, thing about okay, it is okay. that different scales for different jobs so if you want to make Thermal power for a house, do it at the individual house. Every house should be passive designed and every house should have some active solar water heating. If you want to make electricity in those days, we were talking about, well, you do it, you, the photovoltaic panels weren't anywhere near as developed as they are, nothing near them. You would, you would look at a wave generator or you'd look at a um, hy, you know, hydroelectric power or something. So you do it at scale. Even though photovoltaic panels have now are on a house and they are individually designed, it's still not as efficient as having it at scale. Let's say you take a whole suburb or village, an area, you build a very large solar farm and batteries because everybody's using it at different times and it can even it out right? so that you, you get a much more even use of the power, and you can afford to put in storage yep. and controls. And to run your own battery system in those days was just diabolical. You know, lead-acid batteries and controls and stuff were just terrible. And, and, and it remained that way for 20 years. But the, thing, the real killer was, yes, you can collect water on your site, but you, it's just a nightmare to run your own sewage system. You know, I, I've built methane generators... I've built um, systems which um, are various kinds of commercially available composting toilets um, and a mixture of the two, septic toilets and so on. They take space and they take time. You've got you've to look after them. Mm. Now, the, the easiest of those is a composting system that we put into one house, which is called the Rotaloo, where each of the sections of it rotate and, and, and it basically composts down as it goes around. But it still has a power demand it, you know, for, for the fans and so on to keep the smell away. And, and there's, there's all sorts of maintenance issues with it. If you go into a blackwater scheme, it's better done at a much, much larger scale. You know, 10,000 houses can make it viable to have a decent sewage system that somebody looks after to try and get back the nutrients. 100,000 is a better number. And 1 million is still viable to run a sewerage system and reclaim everything, but not one house.
didn't the New South Wales Water Board trial this and, and it went and it was it was so successful it went nowhere? That at some Marys, I believe they were they were they were trialling a very similar system, were they not? Yeah, the thing about it is that that it's the delivery system of getting the waste from the house to the to the plant means that it's full of water, and you've got to actually then get rid of the, separate out the solids and the the useful materials, which is the aforementioned faeces and urine it contains lots and lots of nutrients which are useful but it's also a whole lot of other things in there that you don't want you know from toilet paper to sanitary napkins and and now wet wipes you know which make these fat birds fat birds you know, just a great <laughs> name I, I was about to say do you have to be autonomous fully i mean there seems to me there's some there's parts of what you're talking about would, would, would can, can work on any scale but when we start talking sewerage and effluent, that bec- that that becomes a little bit complicated. So does that? Does yeah, that, that's right. Is, is that important? What we what we then spent was the next ten years um, um, trying to work out what had gone wrong in the autonomous house movement um, by trying to work out at what scale do you do various things. Right. And, and transport was added to it, and food was added to it. And if each house tries to grow your own food. It's very really difficult, but if you get a community garden going, it ha- it's a multiplier effect because it, you get more food, you can do companion planting, you can do the permaculture, but you also get the social aspect of people meeting with other people right. and growing other food. I'll swap you my potatoes for your carrots, I'll swap you my you know, Asian greens to, to have this lettuce. And that idea of community... And the social aspects of it. We were entirely interested in environmental technology. And all of a sudden, this social aspect to it, mm-hmm. that it's not just one thing to grow plants and you're doing it by yourself. and But if you're actually standing next to somebody doing it and they're learning something, they're going to teach you something, then there's a dynamic about it and you do it at a scale. So I think it's just utterly fantastic. The same year that I'd gone to America where they had the Aquarius Festival in Nimbin, And there's a number of things which are called MOs, multiple occupancies, as a result of that. So you took a piece of land and there were multiple houses built on that land. Um, And there was a permission to have MOs, these multiple occupancies. And and to this day, they're still there. And there's still a number of these communal uses of land. But the history of it was that it was still a version of suburbia. It was still a version of, I've got my house, you've got your house, there's space in between us, you know, don't bother me, you know, I'm independent, but we might join together to, you know, grow some particular plants of the Herb Superb or we might get together to start making biodiesel or whatever. But the real aspect to it was that if you could make a community, a full-on exchange community, that it was based on ecological principles so we'd gone way, way, way out the door in the in looking for the ecological purity and missing this kind of social interaction form for it. So I became much more interested in group housing and and co-op housing right. and so on. So by the mid eighties, um, in all of this I was back with Cole James again, who and and his his partner Corinne Shelshire doing co op housing and you know, a couple of things alpha and Stucco were two co-ops that we'd worked on. And it's amazing the dynamic that builds up from having all those people together. 
for instance, today on some of the group housing that we're doing, it's all about share cars. So you don't own a car. Even the organisation doesn't own a car. What you do is you provide a space and somebody, one of the big companies that provides, you know, flexi car 24-7, go get, you get a car on that site. And it's open to the public, but predominantly it's used by people in that. So there are these communities growing up all over the place. But the the ultimate quality of that, in some respects, is the Nightingale Group. Yeah, I was about to say, that, that's where all this is kind of leading to. Because that's, It is. And just recently, I'll be, I've been reading, though, is it their third iteration, I believe? There? Look, does, I, I think it will take off, but it, it's you know, softly, softly catch the monkey at this point because they, they're feeling their way as to how you can actually make something which is both affordable and, 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 yeah. and ecologically sensible. And again, they're basing it on not having car parking, but having share cars, using bicycles, having share laundries. And so that to me is this long arc that took 45 years from the start of the hippie groups in the 70s over into the end of where we are. The, The coda to this story is that one of the great, um, proselytizers of the aut- autonomous house was Michael Mobbs, who took a terrace in Myrtle Street in in um, Chippendale, Chippendale yeah. and um, turned it into an autonomous house. Put photovoltaic cells in, put water heating, put his own sewerage system. Dealt with grey water and black water on this tiny area of his his house, um, and wrote books about it and did tours for it. And um, the house has been remade several times, originally designed with Harry Haymore and then redesigned with Alex Sarnas. Um, the, the house wasn't as important as the technologies that were in it. And, he, and, and by all repute, he'd had 30,000 people go through this house. And just recently, he's publicising the fact that he's going to quit the city because he's uh, become a catastrophist. He thinks, there's a, he thinks Armageddon's coming. You know? and, and I think... I have two problems with that. Firstly, I think his house was the wrong thing. It's an individual house. It plays into that thing of Australian suburbia if you have your own house and you you try and do everything as a loner, as an individual. You don't do it as a community. The idea of an autonomous house still, I think, is powerful. I've done several of them. Right. Um, you know, done one on an island up in the Whitsundays where you have to be ecologically low footprint mm-hmm. and there is no connections. I've done one down on the south coast for the aforementioned Mar Grounds. Okay. So I actually got to go back and work with my original mentor as after he'd retired and he was working as a sculptor. And we did a probably the longest, <laughs> it's two houses joined together in the single room deep, stretched out across the contour mm. as a passive solar house and it's got its own power systems and it had you know, um, its own sewerage systems. So but it's on, it's on acreage and it's intended as a, a retreat place for artists and so on and it's developed a whole series of artworks and so on. That I think is sensible. I mean, that, that, that's where autonomy makes sense. It's like a farm. But in the city, I don't think you want the street farmhouse anymore. I think you want something along the lines of a communal building in which you do as much as you can for the community so that 
people pitch in, particularly about food and transport. And then you that is part of a wider community, which is part of a wider technology that can take care of you know the the worst parts of it, which is human waste and recycling and so on. But if we took bits and pieces or even 60-70% of what you developed or what you learned, wouldn't that be a good thing? I think the thing that that worries me about the what was the preppers? What's the thing they're preparing for the oh, the, uh, the, the, pre- the doomsday preppers? Yeah, yeah, doomsday preppers. The thing that worries me about all of that is that it ignores entirely all the good things that are happening and all the things that are happening at community scale and individual scale. So I've I've um, written a long piece recently about h- how to identify all these possible shoots. And I haven't finished writing it because there's just more and more things. Oh, yeah. you, know, you know, things like 20% of Australian homes now have photovoltaics on them. And you can do that because they're individual. The worst thing about it's suburbia. 20%. The worst thing about suburbia is they're all separate houses with great big roofs. The yeah. best thing about house, separate houses with big roofs is you can put photovoltaics on them. Right? Um, the rise of, of all the, um, the bike lanes yeah. has been massively overtaken by electric bikes. Because electric, the, 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 the statistics that I've seen are that a person who owns an electric bike rides it twice as often as a person who owns a normal bike or a pedalled bike. A lot easier going up those hills with no, electric bike. Yeah, you, you know, if you're in, in hilly places. You like know. Surrey Hills. <laughs> like the whole of Sydney and no, Brisbane. Yeah, and, yeah. Yeah. The rise of the number of people riding bikes, electric bikes or not, the number of people who put solar panels in, the number of people who are growing food in gardens, doing community yeah. gardens, Turning over the front gardens, even the verge. I mean, to give Michael Mobbs his due, he, he you know he tried to convert Myrtle Street into a public garden with food growing in it. A, you know, garden that would grow things. But there it was, sounds like an improvement for Myrtle Street. Well, the thing is, we've got so many multicultural backbone to Australia yeah. from from originally from Southern Europe and more recently from Asia, who are used to growing their own food really close to home. Yeah. There are, there are Even I've done that. I mean, you know, I've, I've grown tomatoes and I enjoy growing tomatoes. I, I find them much tastier than what you buy in the shops. There are places out, there's one place in, called Blue Smart Blue Farms, Smart Blue Farms in Camden where they've got a giant greenhouse. They grow Asian greens and lettuces and so on. And the waste from that goes down and feeds barramundi. And the barramundi waste is collected and recycled hydroponically onto the, onto the food that they're growing, onto, oh, onto wow. the greens that they're growing. It's commercially operated. I won't mention the name of the very large, um, one of the big three uh, supermarkets is actually getting its barramundi and its Asian greens from that. So there are, which is factory farming. So it, you know that would be in a complete anathema to you know the the tone wheeler of nineteen seventy three was that you know you, that's an oxymoron. You can't put those two things together. Yeah. Yet I now see that as a brilliant way of recycling old sheds and old buildings and so on into farms that we can control the moisture and the, and the temperature and so on. Um, and the technologies for doing it are being developed for you know, another form of green growing. I think there's an enormous number of green shoots, as we would call them. Um, you know, the fact that we've got an enormous number of, of uh, office buildings now being built for the quality of the interior. Not to save energy, not to save water, but to make people feel better at work. 
The well-being movement. The well-being yeah, movement. Okay. Yeah, that's what it is, the wellness. Yeah. Um, if you take all of those things together, we're working on our houses, we're working on transport, we're working on food, we're working on offices, we're working on manufacturing. So a lot of the things that you mentioned are not going to be used by the, the big, well, maybe not yet by the big construction companies. But they are taking bits of it. For example, oh, they're using, they're making gardens. They're 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 making. They're deliberately designing apartments where people have to bump into each other. Okay, so they so they have to actually talk. Retirement apartments, in particular. Yeah. yeah. Um. They they obviously there's one around the corner here that the recent was at, mm. actually earlier this year that basically runs a lot of its own power. Um. There are, you know, they, they reuse water. That's, that's become now par se, reusing water. I mean, it's like, you know, it's, it's almost like everyone's reusing their water for something. So with everything that you mentioned, you know, there is a sort of a, if you excuse the pun, osmosis of ideas being taken all over the built environment. And that's a good thing, right? That's, that's the summary. And, and, and in closing, Branko, what I'd say to you is in response to... The catastrophists like Michael Mobbs, I'd say that, look, don't let the politics of the day get you down because the politics are terrible. And so my final hope for all of that is that I, I actually think there's real positivity that the, the green karma is going to run eventually over the brown dogma. Especially if, uh, if it becomes financially viable. That's the thing that runs the market economy. Thank you. Thanks, Branko. Tone Wheeler, that was absolutely fascinating. I mean, seriously, that was probably one of the most uh, educational, educative, whatever the term is, uh, podcasts I've done uh, since when I started this. Um, thank you very much. Uh, I hope to see you again. A uh, pleasure. I yeah. think I may well see you again. Yeah, let's um, have a rave next week again. <laughs> let's have a rave next, next week again. Thank you very much, Tone Wheeler. You've been listening to Talking Architecture and Design. Uh, until next time, goodbye. Thank you.